0: The following program is sponsored by Truth Incorporated.
1: Today on Know the Truth, from Philip DeCourcy. Things
2: cease to be good when they're unplugged from a good God who gives good things. But in their God-given place, there's a lot to be enjoyed. God is the antecedent and the wellspring of all things. And therefore, when we unplug those things from the divine purpose and from the divine origin, they will cease to be good.
1: We spend countless hours working hard to earn a living and we save up money to purchase nice things, only to leave all our possessions to someone else when we pass on. Much as we try to hold on to what we have, in the end, we can't take it with us. Today on Know the Truth, Philip de Corsi presents a study in Ecclesiastes. None of us can escape the reality of death, but how can we live purposefully in the meantime? Here's Philip with a message titled,
2: Certain Death. Our birth, sorry to remind you, comes with a guaranteed death. The Bible tells us, even here in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, and verse 2, there's a time to be born and there is a time to die. Every birth comes with a guaranteed death. Aren't you so glad you came today? But this is the fact one event happens to us all, to the wise, to the unwise death is no respecter of persons the nobel peace prize winner will meet the same fate as the man who can't spell his name given the reality and the results of death solomon found life a rather dismal prospect he he now comes to hate life he's really struggling it was distressing to me it's all empty it's a chasing of the wind what's the point why get up in the morning why build your kingdom? When death will rip it from your hand and you don't know if your kingdom will fall into the hands of a fool. What's the point of being wise? The foolish in the end are not much worse off than I am or better off. Solomon is appalled at life in the face of death. There's two other things that disturb him about death, fraternity, finality, futility. One, the reality of leaving everything. And two, the risk of leaving everything. Solomon has kept his nose to the grinder. He made something of his life. He certainly made something of his kingdom. We know that his kingdom was the high watermark of Israel's history. But then there's this disturbing thought that he will leave it all behind. Look at verse 18. Then I hated all my labor in which I toiled under the sun, because here's the reason I've, I've kind of lost my vim for life, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Verse 20, therefore, I turned my heart and the spirit of all my labor in which I told unto the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. You're going to have to leave everything. That's what Solomon says I am. And I'm not comfortable with that thought. You're going to leave your house, your car, your clothes, all the things you touch, smell, taste on a given day. Someday we're going to leave it all. Most of all, we'll leave those we love and those who love us. That's life. Someday we're going to leave it all. That's why, just as a footnote to that, you and I mustn't become too attached to this world or the things of this world. Jesus warned us, Disney, don't lay up your treasures on earth because you're going to leave them all. And when you're alive, there's every chance you can lose it all. This, this is another thought. Solomon drills down deeper. And he's disturbed even more. He's getting no relief. It's getting worse. The more he thinks, the more mad he becomes. Okay, I'm going to leave the whole kit and caboodle. But here's the thing. I haven't even got control over who gets what I leave. Verse 18 and 19. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it. That's bad enough. But here's the other thing, verse 19. Who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will rule over my labor in which I toiled in which I had shown myself wise. Solomon goes on to talk about, hey, there's this guy and he lives wisely and he acts skillfully and he builds something with his life and around his life, but he leaves his heritage to a man that doesn't even labor for it. Maybe he has no apparent heir. Where does the estate go? That's the kind of thinking Solomon's doing here. And he's galled by the thought that the person after him could pull down what he built up, spend what he saved, stand against what he stood for. I'm jumping ahead of you. First Kings 12, read it in your own time. Chapter 11 begins with Solomon's death, the rise of Rehoboam, Solomon's son. The first crisis he has to deal with is the people are tired under the heavy burden of taxation, which was part of Solomon's latter reign. And so they ask for some uh, relief. Rehoboam goes to the elders and said, what do you think? They said, I think that's a good idea. You know, it's a popular move. It'll cement your relationship with the people. Go for it. Rehoboam goes out with his friends, his peer group. You know, the group that you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. The group that never tells you what you need to hear, only what you want to hear. And they say, hey, your father was like a little finger compared to your thumb. You tax them. Tax them even heavier. This is your kingdom. What happens? Israel gets torn right down the middle. And all that Solomon had worked for goes down the toilet. And Israel hardly ever recovers. From that point forward, divided kingdom. Eventually, both those kingdoms will be carried into exile and subjugated by their enemies because they're divided. House divided against itself cannot stand. You wonder if Solomon had an inkling of that. And he stays up at night here, according to verse 23, his heart as no rest. And maybe he's wondering how Rehoboam's going to fare. What's the point? In the best of circumstances, a wise man takes the reins of your estate. And that's unfair in itself because he gets what you worked for. He gets what he didn't work for. But in the worst of circumstances, a fool takes the reins of your estate and squanders all your privileges. Pretty disturbing. So I'm glad that Solomon doesn't end the passage in despair. Look at verse 24. There's a change of mood here which marks a big transition in the book. This is the first of six conclusions in the book of Ecclesiastes which reminds us that life is a gift from God. God? Who's God, Solomon? Because you haven't been talking about him, have you? Not much. But now he begins to talk about God. Now he begins to paint God back in the picture because remember the thesis of the book? Solomon writes the book from from the perspective of a pretended autonomy. He's imagining that there is no heaven, to borrow the words of John Lennon. Imagine this earth without faith in God. Solomon has done that, and it's an awful place. It's like the chasing of the wind. But now he says, okay, enough of that. And a hand comes through the clouds, the hand of God, reminding us... That despite all the inequities and the mysteries of life, there is an order to life. There is a purpose to life. And Solomon says, therefore, in verse 24, Therefore, nothing is better for a man than he should eat, drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. I saw this was from the hand of God. Who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? Question mark If you're going to enjoy life, you've got to enjoy it in relationship to the one who give it. The one who gives wisdom, verse 26, knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. This is a major turning point in the book. Pessimism turns to optimism. What Solomon has been trashing, he now tells us to treasure. Okay? He's kind of been trashing wisdom and pleasure and work. Work is futile. Pleasure is passing. Wisdom doesn't have all the answers. Well, how do we explain this? He tells us now to treasure what he has been trashing. I think the solution is found in that Solomon now is looking at life from a Godward perspective. These things that he and others have been pursuing were idols. He was seeking to find ultimate reality and joy and satisfaction and purpose in things. But he's saying, look, if you stop expecting these things to yield more than God intended and find your joy in God, you'll find these things are not futile and they have their place and they can be enjoyed as gifts from the giver. That's his point. We must stop expecting, he says, material things and worldly pursuits to give us significance and satisfaction because that alone is found in God. That's where this book will end. That's why we're beginning to get his conclusion drip through the book. What's the conclusion? Fear God keep his commandments. This is man's duty. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13. He's given us a hint of it. Look, the hand of God provides us life and provides us all those things necessary for life. And although we're surrounded now by death because of sin and the world in which we live is all jumbled up and mixed up and it longs for that redemption, that restoration in that future day according to Romans 8. Nevertheless, I don't want you to become cynical about life. I don't want death to so rob you of the joy of life that you can't sit down and eat and drink and see that what you have is from God. See it as from God. See the God who stands behind it and enjoy Him and enjoy what He gives. That's basically what He's saying here. And you and I need to heed that from two perspectives. Number one, God is the antecedent and the wellspring of all things. And therefore, when we unplug those things from the divine purpose and from the divine origin, they will cease to be good. That's why earlier, unplugged, wisdom, pleasure, and work give no satisfaction. But you know what? Plug and play now in terms of a relationship with God. And there is satisfaction in your work. It's relative and limited. And there is satisfaction in eating and drinking and enjoying a friend's or a family's company. Things cease to be good when they're unplugged from a good God who gives good things. But in their God-given place... There's a lot to be enjoyed. Here's uh, the kind of second quick application of that. When we stop expecting things to yield more than God intended from them, we can really enjoy them then in proper proportion and in their proper place. Enjoy the small and simple things. Death is a reality, and death will overtake us all. But life must be lived nevertheless. And therefore, you've got to live life as it goes along. Despite all the injustices, the unanswered questions, the reality of death, the frustration that is part of the human experience, if you're going to wait until things are perfect, you'll be waiting a long time. It'll never come in this life. Therefore, Solomon is basically saying here, now I have, I've highlighted all the things that's wrong about life, and I have to some degree accented those because I've taken God out of the picture. Bringing God back into the picture doesn't take away some of those realities, but it changes the perspective. And therefore, don't postpone your joy. And this is a good challenge because some of us think we're going to be happier tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. That if we get this or we get there, then we'll be truly happy. And Solomon says, no, the best thing you can do is eat and drink and enjoy the good of your labor on any given day. I don't know if you've ever read Robert Hastings, the station. He likens life to a train ride. We're all traveling on the train and out the windows we drink in the passing scenery, the children that wave at the crossing, the cattle grazing on the distant hillside, the smoke pouring out of the chimneys of the houses we're passing in the villages that are part of the journey. But uppermost in our mind is this final destination. When we will get to that place and when we, when we get there, the band will be playing and the flags will be waving and all our dreams will come true. And all the pieces of the puzzle will come together. And so in the meantime, while we're looking out the window, life is passing us by. While we look out the window, we're walking the aisles, damning the minutes for loitering, waiting, waiting, waiting for the station. The station may be when we're 18. 18. The station may be when we graduate from college, when we pay off our mortgage, when we get to retirement with sufficient funds. Then we'll be happy. Here's what he says, Sooner or later we must realize there is no station, no place to arrive at once for all. The true joy of life is the trip. The station is only a dream that constantly outdistances us. I think that's true. Life must be lived as we go along, even when it stinks, even when it's not what God wanted it to be in his original plan and we wait for him to fix it all in the world to come. There's nothing better for you and I to do than to see life as from the hand of God, to eat and drink and enjoy our labor, to enjoy the wisdom and the knowledge and the joy that he gives to those that please him. When all our ways please him, we'll find pleasure, even in a world stalked by death and futility. I'd like to stop here, but I'm not, because I want to go outside the context of this just for a few moments as we come to a close, because God not only wants us to enjoy life, he wants us to have hope in the face of death. This whole passage has been suffocating in its thought that, you know what, you you can't get away from death. It's a runner. You're in a race, and you won't be able to outrun it or outdistance it. But I want us to see that there is an answer to this. An answer this book anticipates because I want to remind you and I'll remind you often that the Bible isn't a religious scrapbook. Okay? Ecclesiastes is part of a bigger genre of writing the wisdom literature. And the wisdom literature is part of a bigger part of the Bible called the Old Covenant of the Old Testament. But the Old Covenant anticipates a new covenant. We've got one Bible, one author, who used many human authors to write this one story that's ultimately centered in this one person called Jesus Christ. It all begins in Genesis, doesn't it? After the fall of Adam into sin, death comes by sin. Death is passed on because of Adam's disobedience. The first gling of hope is, we're told about the seed of a woman who will destroy the serpent. Oh, I wonder who that is. I wonder what that is. Well, start reading the New Testament. Start reading the Gospels. Read about a young virgin called Mary who is impregnated by holy seed, overshadowed by the power of the Most High through the agency of the Holy Spirit. One is created in her. Who is the very Son of God, the God-man, the mediator, the dayspring, the advocate. Here we are lost in Ecclesiastes. Most of this book is a pretended autonomy that there is no God, there is no hope, there is no Christ, there is no resurrection, there is no answer to sin all very depressing. But this book anticipates something. The Old Testament anticipates the New Testament when the Son of God would come and through his death on our behalf on the cross, according to Second Timothy 1 verse 10, he would abolish death. Amen? Abolish death. That's a word that means disarm it. Render it ineffective. And that's what Jesus Christ has done Though a man die, yet shall he live. John 11 verse 25. He has rendered death ineffective. Death is real. But we're no longer held in its bondage. Death will not have the final say. Jesus Christ has had the final say over death. He has killed death by his own death. Hallelujah. Solomon has looked at death and how it... It seems to uh, take away the joy of living. Seems to rob a man of his significance. Is life worth living? Is work worth doing in the face of death? Absolutely. Because in Jesus Christ, who is described in Matthew 12 as the greater than Solomon. A greater than Solomon has come. Solomon had no answer to death. But a greater than Solomon has come. And he has answered the question of death in his own death. And because a resurrection happened to him, a resurrection will happen to us. Though we die, yet shall we live, because death could not hold him. And therefore, according to 1 Corinthians 15, we need to go on abounding in the work of the Lord because our labor is not in vain. There's our word in Ecclesiastes. Life isn't wasted time. Your work won't be forgotten. Your life won't become a footnote. You'll have eternal success and eternal significance if your life is lived in the power and for the purpose of the glorification of Jesus Christ. Death is not the end. It is but the beginning of a better, fuller, longer life which begins in this life by putting your trust and depositing your treasure in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to remind ourselves, Christ and the Christian will have the last laugh when it comes to death. 1 Corinthians 15, it anticipates our Lord's return, the gathering of His people. The dead will be raised, their bodies reunited with their departed spirits, and they'll look back. And what will they say according to 1 Corinthians 15? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The Russian Orthodox Church the day after Easter spends its time telling jokes. That's their tradition. Russian Orthodox people, the day after Easter, sit around with priests and friends and family and they tell jokes. Have you heard this one? You go, why? Because they believe that Easter, God pulled the greatest joke of all. When Satan thought he had won, God had the last laugh when he raised his son three days and two nights later. And the Christian will have the last laugh. That's why there's nothing better for us to do than live life as it goes along under the rule and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Eating and drinking, whatever we're doing, we're doing it to the glory of God because his resurrection makes all the difference to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the day spring who has visited us from on high. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the dawning of hope of a better day. Oh, God, we thank you. He has brought light into the darkness to those that sit in the shadow of death. Lord, without the resurrection, we are of all men most miserable. We could join Solomon and we could moan and groan as good as he does. But there's an empty grave and there's an empty cross and there's an occupied throne and there's a returning king. And that makes all the difference. We go on living joyfully, hopefully, purposefully because our labor is not in vain in the Lord. He will remember our work. He will call us by name. He will call us home. And we will not be a footnote in history. We will join those who will make headlines for all eternity. And we thank you for that. And if somebody's here today or someone's listening through our media ministry, O oh God, help them to come to faith in Jesus Christ this day. May they know He is the resurrection and the life. May He resurrect hope in them. These things we pray in Him.
1: Amen. Amen. You're listening to Know the Truth in a study in Ecclesiastes from Philip de Courcy titled Certain Death. If you missed any portion of today's message, you can hear the entire program by going online to ktt.org. Or order the complete Quest for the Best Study on CD when you call 888-644-8811. And thanks for remembering that, like other nonprofit ministries, know the truth depends on your generosity. And when you give today, every bit of your donation goes right to the production and distribution of this daily Bible teaching program. Call in a one-time gift today at 888-644-8811 or become one of our monthly Truth Ambassadors. You can sign up to give a monthly donation online at ktt.org. And when your donation is $20 or more, Pastor Philip would like to send you a book by Philip Ryken titled, Why Everything Matters. Ryken is a respected author and the president of Wheaton College. In this commentary, he writes... Think of Ecclesiastes as the Bible's cattle prod. The preacher's words push us to expect lasting satisfaction, not in money and pleasure, but in the goodness of God. Don't miss getting your copy of Why Everything Matters when you give $20 or more. Donate online at ktt.org or call 888-644-8811. You can also send your gift to us by mail when you write to us at know the Truth. Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. And when you visit our website, be sure to let us know how this ministry is impacting your walk with Christ. If you're new to know the truth, we'd also like to send you a free CD message from Philip titled Chasing Pretty Bubbles. It's another practical resource you can request at our website, ktt.org. Again, that's ktt.org. That's all our time for today. I'm your host, Wayne Shepard. Come back tomorrow when Philip opens to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 for a message titled, It's About Time. That's Friday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth, Incorporated. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free.
2: One of the great privileges of my life has been to stand shoulder to shoulder with WAVA listeners in Israel. This is WAVA's Dennis Williams. I love Israel. I want to invite you to join me in experiencing Israel. Or, if you've been to Israel before, it's time to return. Join me on December 2nd through the 11th, 2019. We'll visit the amazing places you've read about in the Bible, including the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Garden Tomb. Find information today at WAVA.com, keyword Israel, or give me a call, 703-807-2211.